Great to have each of you here this morning. Uh, just counted a privilege to uh, have you with us for our season of worship. If you're visiting with us today, we have a little spot out front called our connection desk where you can make contact uh, and request any assistance or help that you may be looking for. If, uh, you just want to sign up and let us know that you visited. You want to be on the email list. You can take care of that out front by the front desk. Okay. Uh, secondly, if you're looking for a place to get connected within our church family, one of the things that we offer uh, from September through the month of May is an adult Bible study class. We have two of them on Sunday morning. So if you're looking for a way to get connected and to begin to develop some relationships with people, that's a place where you can get to know, meet other people, and get more fully engaged in the context of our church family. Doug Finkbinder is teaching the class on parables along with some other folks, and then Pastor James is teaching the uh, class on dealing with everyday conflict, okay? If you don't have any conflict in your life ever, you don't need that class. You can go to the parables class, all right? Uh, if you've never participated in believer's baptism, uh, we have a sign-up sheet out front, ask you to sign up. If you have questions about that, as we announce that, if that raises questions for you and you'd like to get some help and understanding on that, please be sure to reach out to one of the pastoral team members and we would be glad to uh, have a discussion with you about that. And then also uh, there will be a membership class on the 16th and 23rd uh, with Pastor James. And then one change in relationship to the schedule we've been following for the uh, teen uh, fellowship time, we've been doing it on Sunday nights. This week we're moving it to Wednesday, and then we'll be on that schedule of Wednesday nights for the youth group meeting uh, here at the church building, 6.30 each Wednesday night. So we would love it. Uh, if you have teenagers and they want to come, we'd love to have them come. And uh, if you have a friend that you would like to invite to join us for that, we would uh, count that a privilege. Okay, I want you to stand with me this morning. I want to read from Psalm 116, where the psalmist says this. It says, I love the Lord because he hears my voice and my supplications, because he has inclined his ear to me. Therefore, I will call on him as long as I live. It is a beautiful thought that the God of heaven, the creator of the universe, that when we uh, bow our heads before him and come into his presence or when we're driving our car and we begin to speak. The psalmist says, I love the Lord because he heard me. And I trust that as you work through your week, as you uh, driving along in your car and you're giving thanks for the beauty of the fall season or you're thinking of a brother or sister who has a need for prayer, that you cry out to God. And, and David's response is, I cried to the Lord and he heard me. Therefore, I love him. I appreciate what he's doing in my life. So we're going to pray together, and I just ask that you would join in with me as we pray for some very specific needs in our church family. So let's pray together. Father, we are grateful that when we cry out to you, you hear our cry. And the psalmist said, for this reason, I love the Lord. Because in the midst of my uh, struggle, in the midst of my deep need, in the midst of my uh, perhaps darker moment... He heard me. And Lord, that is a great source of comfort and encouragement for us. We pray this morning for our brother Al Nichols as he prepares for a rather serious shoulder surgery this week. We pray that he would experience peace, that both he and Pat would, would know your presence as they walk through this week and plan for that surgery later this week, that your hand would be upon them and that they would know your comfort and your presence 
in their lives, that you would bring healing and even protection through the process of this surgery. We thank you for the good progress that Kathy's husband, uh, Kathy Halpin's husband, Ray, is experiencing. Father, we pray that that would continue and that you would minister to and encourage his heart in this uh, rather long, drawn-out season of sickness. Pour favor over him. We pray the same for Diana and Victor. Lord, as we think about them, our hearts sometimes feel heavy and burdened. Thank you that you hear our prayer and that you move and that you work and that you support and strengthen for your glory. We pray for our missionary, uh, Joey, that was with us a few weeks ago, for he and his wife, their kids, as they minister to international students, that you would give them strength and encouragement and fruitfulness in the ministry you have called them to. And Lord, over our church family this morning, as we stand in your presence to sing praises to your name, I pray that the words that we sing would not come from memory, but from our hearts. Hearts deeply touched by the fact that the Lord heard me. And Lord, this is our response to you. This is our opportunity to give thanks to you and to praise you together and in so doing to encourage one another's hearts. So bless our season of worship. Thank you for Carmelo and the worship team and the ministry they give to us. Help us all to sing, not to listen, but to participate in this season of giving thanks because you heard our cry. We pray these blessings in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. Let's worship him together. Even though I walk, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, your perfect love is casting out fear. And even when I'm caught in the middle of the storms of this life, I won't turn back, I know you are near, and I will fear no evil. For my God is with me, if my God is with me, whom then shall I fear, whom then shall I fear? Casting out fear, I don't have to fear, even when I'm caught in the middle of the storms of this life. I won't turn back, I know you are near, and I will fear no evil. For my God, for my God is with me, if my God is with Shall I fear? Whom then shall I fear? Who 
I can see a light that is coming for the heart that holds on. There will be an end to these troubles, but until that day comes, still I will praise you. Troubles, but until that day comes, still I will praise you. Still I will praise you. Yes, we'll still praise you, Lord. Oh no, you never let go. And oh no, you never let go through the calm and through the storm. Oh no, you never let go in every high and every these troubles, but until that day comes, still I will praise you, still I will praise you. Yes, we'll still praise you, Lord. Still of night, every waking moment for your delight. 
Two, two new songs. <laughs> I don't usually do this, but we have two new songs uh, this morning we're going to sing next. And you know, they're kind of two sides of the same coin. Uh, we have a first song called, I Will Trust My Savior Jesus. And you know, in this song, it says some lines that I think a lot of us um, often might feel in our faith. Uh, for example, it says, when my darkest doubts befall, I trust him, Jesus, when to simply trust him seems the hardest thing of all. That when trusting God seems the most difficult thing to do. I simply trust him. It's a song that's sort of a interesting sort of lament in the idea that I will trust him even when my strength is small um, because I know, and I know this in my soul, right? Like I know when hard things come that I should trust him. But as we've probably all experienced, there's a point where you go, I know I'm supposed to trust God. I'm having a hard time doing that right now. So God, please help me to trust you. It's this weird sort of cyclical kind of experience, you know, and there's a, um, one of my favorite phrases in the Bible is that concept of he's the author and perfecter of our faith, right? He creates the faith. He perfects our faith. He is constantly helping us in our faith, um, you know, to follow him. And yet, you know, we are trusting him because of what he did for us, of course. And yet he also understands that I'm a human being. Like he understands human beings, you know, he made us. So he understands what, what it means literally as creator, but also as human being, what it means to be uh, a human. And it's difficult. It's difficult at times to just simply trust him. After we sing that song, 
which ends with, um, I can trust him because I know what he did for me on the cross. And therefore, because what he did for me on the cross seals my salvation forever, I should trust him in everything. After we sing that, we get into a song called Graves in the Gardens, which I imagine some of you are aware of. Um, and this is a song that, that really talks about that idea of, I was dead, but now I'm alive. A, a grave has turned into a garden. You know, and it says lines in here, um, towards the end of the song, it says, you turn graves in the gardens. It throws in a deep cut here from Ezekiel, which I like, which is you turn bones in the armies, which always threw me off in the song. And I was always like, I don't know what that is. Well, that's Ezekiel prophesying over a valley of dead bodies that are literally, decom- this is gross, decomposed to bones. And then they come to life because God has given him the power to prophesy over them. They come to life. It's an army of living creatures because God can bring somebody back to life. You know, the point of the song is this. Sometimes we live in light of Jesus's existence and forget all the miracles that he, that God is doing currently, but also what he did in the old Testament. You know, it says we turn seas in the highways. He parted a sea so the Israelites could walk across. You turn bones in the armies. The old Testament God is the same as the new Testament God. And he's looking, he's asking us, I think through the songs, what I would look for you to do is look to him as not just small savior, small S savior, you know, in our lives, but big S savior, that idea of him. He is this grand God who created the whole universe, created my body functioning right now. So my arms can move like this without me thinking about it. He did all these things. Right. And yet sometimes I look at him like, uh, Jesus, I can't trust you. You know, I look at him like in a small way, like he's a small S savior, but he's obviously so much bigger and grander, uh, than that. What God has done for us is massive. He can turn bones in the armies. He can turn Sees in the highways. He can make a way when there's simply uh, no way. So um, these two songs, sing them with that idea of if my faith is small, it needs to increase today because I am praising a big God who can do incredible, amazing things. Jesus is the safest place. 
I search the world. And I search the world. But it couldn't fill me. A man's empty praise and treasures that fade are never enough. And you came along and put me back together. And every desire is now satisfied here in your love. Oh, there's nothing. Oh, there's nothing better than you. There's nothing. Nothing is better than you. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid to show you my weakness, my failures and flaws. Lord, you've seen them all, and you still call me friend. Because the God of the mountain is the God of the valley. And there's not a place your mercy and grace won't find me Turn morning, you turn morning to dancing, you give beauty for ashes, you turn shame into glory, you're the only one who can, you turn morning to dancing, you give beauty for ashes. You turn shame into glory. You're the only one who can. You turn graves into gardens. You turn bones into armies. You turn seas into highways. You're the Better than you, Lord, there's nothing 
Yes, Lord, you're the only one who can. Yes, God, we mean that this morning. You're the only one who can. I can't do these things on my own. I can't raise myself from the dead. You're the only one who can. Lord, for the Christians in this room, Lord, this is what we've been searching for. And there was a point in our life where we were looking for something. You know, man's empty praise and treasures that fade are not enough. And then you came along and you put me back together. You made me whole and complete, Lord, and you set me on a path, Lord, to Jesus, to be like Christ. And God, you know, the garden imagery is all through the Bible. We have this garden in the beginning. This is how it's supposed to be. Life, life everlasting, alive for eternity. And then sin enters the picture and that's broken completely. And even for us, that's true. There's beautiful aspects to being a human being. But in the end, Lord, we know that we all die. But you turn these graves in the gardens. Yes, I die, but I fall asleep in Christ, as the Bible says, and I wake up with you, and I'm changed and different. And then, Lord, you know, in the New Testament, there was a garden that you prayed in, and you wept in, and you looked to your Father, and you said, I'm scared. I don't really want to go through this, but I know what you called me here for. And my purpose is about to be fulfilled. Not my will, but yours be done, you said. God, may that be true for us too. May we look to Jesus as the author and perfecter of our faith. That when we sit there and say, I don't want to go through this. I don't want to do this. I don't want this problem in my life. Why me? Why'd this happen to me? This isn't fair. God, may we look to you and remember you prayed and you wept. And yet you still said, God, not my will. Father, not my will, but yours be done. So in our lives, God, may that be true. May we look to you and trust you in all things. May we simply trust you when it's difficult to do that. Lord, may we trust you as you hear your word this morning, Ecclesiastes. Just asking God your blessing over the sermon this morning. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Morning. Uh, children, you can be dismissed for junior church. And for the rest of us, would you turn in your Bibles with me to Ecclesiastes chapter 1. 
Ecclesiastes chapter 1, and we are going to be looking at the end of chapter 1, verses 12 through the end, and then we'll pick up the first 11 verses of chapter 2. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal. And they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. So, did you pass history? <laughs> Do you know where that, this is the second line of a major document of our country, and it's the, what? No. Declaration of Independence. Jefferson, Adams, and Franklin got together and they wrote this Declaration of Independence to frame out our country and it was laying out uh, certain rights. It's interesting, they said that we hold these truths to be self-evident. Um, it was sacred, I think they initially used the word sacred. And that all men are created equal. I can't imagine as they were writing that in a country that had slaves and Thomas Jefferson, a writer of this independence, Declaration of Independence, the battle that must have been happening within him as he's writing this and saying that all humanity, all men are created equal, but he owned slaves. So the battle that was going on within him. And then they went back to they are endowed by their creator. Uh, they looked at a creator. They looked at a sovereign God. Now, I don't know John Adams, I believe, based on what I learned of him, I think he was a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. I, I doubt that Franklin was, and Jefferson didn't say, uh, we didn't see much from his life. They did believe in a deist faith, uh, a God that was above and sovereign and in control, and even their government was submissive under that sovereign, and then the people were under that. He says, we hold these truths. These are absolute truths to be evident for all that all humanity are created equal and that they were endowed by this creator with certain unalienable rights, rights that can't be separated from you, rights that can't be taken away from you, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. I love that line. And you know, our country, for all the things that are a mess about our country, our country and the framework of what we had and what our nation stood for initially, um, I think is better than any other country around. I, I, may be, I may be biased, but I thought about those three phrases, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. As I've come to the section that we're gonna be studying this morning, in fact, as we study through the whole book of Ecclesiastes, as Pastor Doug got us started last week, I, I really do think that this man is on a search for meaning and trying to figure out what the meaning of life and, and what real freedom is, what li real liberty is, and what real happiness is. That's what he's looking for. As we heard from Pastor Doug last week, vanity, meaningless, meaningless, the preacher says. It's completely meaningless. It's futile. 
And I think, sad to say, is that that's where most of us see ourselves today. If we look in this world today, people are in a pursuit for life, liberty, and happiness, and they keep coming up empty. What we're going to find this morning, as we read through this passage and study through it, is that the preacher, the Koalith, is, is preaching, and he says, I'm, I'm searching for wisdom, and I'm searching for pleasure. And he's looking at these two areas, wisdom, and I believe it's King Solomon that is writing this, and if it is, he was viewed as the wisest man of, around ever outside of the Lord Jesus Christ. So he was endowed with wisdom by God, but as we heard from last week, this is not a wisdom that is a biblically-based wisdom. He's looking for wisdom from humanity, just from humanity's level. So he's taking humanity's beliefs and humanity's wisdom, if you want to call it that, and he's looking for meaning. And I was thinking, very honestly, isn't that us today? We look for meaning in wisdom and pleasure. If you just go to the self-help book section on Amazon, just go to Amazon and you go self-help, how many books... How many courses, how many things are out there for people trying to gain wisdom, trying to figure out the meaning of life, and they fail. The book becomes a bestseller, and then it's gone after 10 years, five years, two years, because it doesn't meet it. It's not good enough. It's futile. And then they go after something else, and they go after something else, and they go after something else. One line of Coke is not enough. I need two. I need three. I need four. One night of watching pornography is not enough. I need more. I need more. I need more. We go after these wisdom and pleasures trying to find meaning, and it comes up as futile. Chasing after the wind. So as the framers of our declaration said, humanity has been given rights by God, unalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. But the reason why it keeps coming back as futile is that they're aiming for the wrong person. They're looking at the wrong foundation. So as we look at this passage this morning, we're going to see the foundation that he's been looking for, wisdom and pleasure and to find meaning. And we're going to find out it's futile. And then we're going to point to the real freedom. So there are three, three points I want to focus on this morning. The first point is in verses 1 through I'm sorry, verses 12 through 18 in chapter 1, and I'm just calling that futility. The futility of humanity, the futility of this world. Uh, so, futility. Uh, then we're going to look at fleeting passions and pleasures. Futility and fleeting passions and pleasures. That's going to take up the first 11 verses of chapter 2. And then finally, we're going to look at freedom. Futility fleeting passions and pleasures, and then real freedom found only in the person and work of Christ. So let's read this, let's pray, and let's get started. Verse 12 of chapter 1, this is the word of the Lord. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem. I've applied my heart to seek and search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I've seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity, striving after wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, 
I've acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. And my heart has great experiences of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. And I perceived that this also is but a striving after wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation. And he who increases in knowledge increases sorrow. I said in my heart, chapter 2, verse 1, I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad. And of pleasure, what use is it? I search my heart how to cheer my body with wine. My heart still guiding me with wisdom and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man under the heaven during the few days of their lives. I made great works. I built houses. I planted vineyards for myself. I myself Garden. I made myself gardens and parks, and I planted them all with fruit trees. I made myself pools from the waters, the forest of growing trees. I, made, I brought male and female slaves and slaves who were born in my house. I also had great possessions of herds and flocks, more than anyone who had been before me in Jerusalem. I had gathered myself silver and gold and the treasures of the kings and the promises. I got singers, both men and women. And many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me. Whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure. For my heart found pleasure in all my toil. And this was a reward for all my toil. And then I considered all that my hands had done. And all the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity. A striving after wind. There was nothing to be gained under the sun. This is God's sufficient, eternal, authoritative, life-giving, and life-changing word. Would you pray with me? So Lord, I pray this morning as we have this opportunity to find that there's nothing, nothing better than you, nothing better than your son. Now, Father, this man is on a search for wisdom, thinking it's going to provide him life, liberty, and a pursuit of happiness, and it doesn't. Then he goes down different paths to seek pleasure, and once again, he comes up empty. Well, it's true for all of us, Father, because if we're seeking wisdom, if we're seeking pleasure outside of your son and outside of your word and outside of you and your spirit, it is going to be futile. So help us learn to learn from this Koelith, this teacher, this preacher. And greater than that, help us to learn from your son today. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so three areas we're going to be looking at. First, we're going to look at the futility. Um, Look with me here in verses 12 and following. He says this, I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem. And so over Israel and Jerusalem, the reason why I believe that this is King Solomon is that outside of King David, um, there was no other king 
that was over all Jerusalem. What we heard last week from Pastor Doug as well, there was a divided kingdom after this. And this divided kingdom happened after King Solomon. So Solomon had a relative level of peace. But we also will learn from Solomon's life, if you read the rest of the uh, scriptures, you will find that Solomon, though he had the greatest wisdom of humanity, he made a lot of foolish mistakes. He brought people into his lives. He talked about concubines. And these concubines were women that were given to him from foreign lands. And oftentimes they were dragging him into idolatry. They were dragging him in into sinfulness. And so Solomon is here saying that I had wisdom, but I did not apply it. Solomon said, I was king over Israel. And then he said, and I applied my heart to seek and search out wisdom. It's interesting that he gave his heart, he applied his heart, his, his, the inter, internal of who he is. He says, I, I've given this to seek and search by wisdom. And as Pastor Doug said last week, this is not godly wisdom. This was just human wisdom. I'm going to try to think of all of the ingenuity on a human level to seek and serve what I can, all that is done under heaven. Now, uh, the title for our series is Under the Sun and Under the Sun. Under the sun, S-U-N, that means everything here on earth, under the heavens. And then under the sun, S-O-N, is finding our value, our, our foundation in Christ. So as the um, writer here is seeking and searching, he's on this test. He finds this interesting in verse 13. He says, it is the unhappy business that God has given the children of man. It could actually be translated the evil business. Now, it's interesting because they, when the translators write this word evil business or when it's the word evil and they're attributed to God, there's a balance, there's a challenge there because God is perfectly holy. He's never going to do anything that's evil. But that word evil in the Bible could also be translated not as a moral evil, but as a disaster, a calamity, troubles and trials. And so as this writer is writing and he's searching out wisdom, everything that's here under heaven, he says it is the unhappy business. That's why the ESV translated it's unhappy. It's the disasters. It's the calamities. It's the struggles. It's the strife. It's the trials. It's the troubles that humanity has. And it's interesting that we have those because of who? God. God gave it to us. And he's, he's looking, he's saying that God has given the children of man to be busy with unhappy trials. He's trying to understand why. Verse 14 starts to begin how he can start to understand this. He said, I've seen everything that is done under the sun. I've, I've looked everything here in this world and behold, he says, really see this. All is vanity. It's a striving after the wind. It's this continual phrase that he's going to use throughout this book. It's vanity, it's meaningless, it's chasing after wind. It's like I'm trying to run after wind and I'm trying to grab at it and I can't, I can't grab it. The same word vanity is also used in Romans chapter 8 verse 20, if you want to mark that in your notes. And this word in the Greek in the New Testament is the word futility. He says in Romans chapter 8, it's interesting that he says, Paul writes in the chapter, he says, for the creation was subjected to futility. Not willingly, but because of him, God, who subjected it, and then the last two words, in hope. Remind, remind me to come back to that word, those last two words, in hope. 
So futility, the frustration, God subjected humanity and the nature creation to this futility. Why? Well, if you remember your, back in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, God created all of these things. And day after day, he says, it is good, it is good, it is good, it is really good, it's good. And God says, it's not good that man be alone. He created a woman for man. And it's like, whoa, it is really, really good. It's great. And God rested after he had created humanity. And so what happens is this. That Genesis 1 and 2 is wonderful. It's beautiful. But Genesis 3 comes into the scene. In Genesis 1 and 2, God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit are our counselors. And as, he, as they are counseling us, we are following their counsel. We are being molded and shaped to look like God. Until a new counselor comes in in Genesis chapter 3. And this new counselor comes in and takes us off course. And what we find in verse 15 here in Ecclesiastes is this. What is crooked cannot be made straight. What is lacking cannot be counted. What happened is that there's a curse that happens in Genesis chapter 3. When the new counselor comes in, this new counselor comes in, and what he does, Satan, he gets humanity to doubt the word of God, doubt the character of God, doubt the authority of God. And when we doubt him, and we are starting to look for wisdom and pleasure outside of God, that's what's happened in the Garden of Eden, we're looking for wisdom and pleasure outside of God, when that happens, what happens is that catastrophe comes in. All of the harmony between humanity and nature is gone. All of the harmony between humanity and humanity is gone. And all of the harmony between humanity and God is gone. And so as the writer to Ecclesiastes is saying, is that God has subjected not only humanity, but creation to this curse. It is because of humanity's sin. Our sin brought this about in our world. Our world is broken. And so the writer of Ecclesiastes says, what is crooked, verse 15, cannot be straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. What he inevitably is saying is this, that sin is at heart here. That sin is deep, sin is deceptive, sin is divisive, but sin it destroys. That's what it does. He still hasn't gotten to that yet, but he says that there's a brokenness here that's in this world. I can tell you the brokenness is because of sin. So everything under the sun is fundamentally broken. It's crooked. What is crooked cannot be made straight. What is wrong cannot be made right. What is defective and lacking cannot be counted. What is missing can't be recovered. That's the fatal flaw of our creation. That's why sexual activities or our drug activities or possessions and all of these things, we grab at them, we get some temporary pleasure, but it is fleeting. It's gone because it's going to be destroyed because of the curse of sin. But in spite of this, this fatal flaw in humanity, the person, the writer, the preacher here doesn't go vertical. He goes horizontal. <laughs> Actually, I think he goes internal and then he goes horizontal. Watch how many times he uses the word I, me, or my in the following verses. Verse 16. I said in my heart, I have acquired wisdom. <laughs> did you really acquire it, Solomon, or did God give it to you? 
I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my heart has great experience of wisdom and knowledge. How self-focused, how self-motivated, how self-centered. The wisest man who ever lived outside of the part of the Lord Jesus Christ was using, he wasn't focusing on godly wisdom, he was focusing on his own. So now he's trying this test. He says, I've applied my heart, verse 17, my heart, to know wisdom. But then in knowing wisdom, what do he find? Madness and folly. Just craziness and foolishness. I perceived that this was, once again, striving after the wind. I'm trying to catch something. I just can't grab it. My basement was filled with stuff that was in boxes that ended up in a dumpster. <laughs> it's like, at one time, I thought I needed it. Another time, it's in a garbage heap. And really, when you think about the end of our lives, I don't want to be too morbid about it, but the reality is, is the end of our lives, our kids are going to go through three piles. One pile where they're going to keep, the other pile they're going to throw away, and the other pile they're going to give away. And the vast majority, well, nobody of us are going to take anything with us. So he says, I've strived after this, and it comes back as striving after wind. Listen to the helplessness of searching for human wisdom. Verse 18. For in much wisdom, how many degrees do you have? All those letters after your name. How many classes have you taken? How many self-help books fill your shelves? All the human wisdom, he says, it leads to much what? Vexation. Troubles. And he who increases in knowledge, increases in sorrow. I get it. I get more. I think it's going to, you see the new podcast, you see the new thing that's on there. And it's like, I need that. I need that. That's what's going to make me happy. That's what's going to give me life. That's what's going to give me liberty. And you buy it. And it's a piece of junk. Futility. Frustration, chasing after the wind. So he went after wisdom, and he's trying to find peace and hope and value in wisdom. But now he does something else. He goes to a test of pleasure. So people test with wisdom, but then they also test with pleasure. And his chapter 2 begins this search for pleasure. And here I call it the fleeting pleasures of this world, the meaninglessness of self-indulgence, verses 1 through 11. And he says this, he goes through these, it's kind of like a practical experiment. He says, I want to find, if I can find real meaning and pleasure, and I'm going to try to hit it from every area that I can think of. And I want you to think of how many areas do you search for pleasure based on what he is using. He said in verse 1, I said in my heart, once again, I, me, my, oh, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself, but behold, this is also meaningless. Vanity. This practical experiment that he's searching for pleasure is coming up empty. So let's look at the first of his test. The test of laughter. In verse 2, he says this, I said of laughter, it is mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? I was thinking that it's interesting that he began with laughter, comedy. 
But really, that's what we do. We turn on a comedy, right? We want to listen to comedians and, and we want to hear these things. But, you know, some comedy is really funny. Some comedy is really nice. Some comedy is really, oh, it's, it's kind of glorifying, right? But the vast majority of comedy out there and laughter out there is not. You know, we, we saw at an um, award ceremony that one comedian made a joke about another man's wife and the man walks down the aisle and smacks the guy in the face. What he did, the man that slapped the guy in the face was horrific. It was wrong. It was terrible on live TV. But it got me thinking, if somebody jokes about my wife, I'm not going to be happy. And we in our society have gotten to a point where we have allowed for critiques and criticisms and slandering and hurting other people and view that as funny. And it's futile. As you're sitting there and listening and they're supposed to smile and laugh as they're being ripped apart. Now, going down the aisle and smacking somebody in the face is wrong. But ripping apart another man's wife... And that's funny. I was thinking about comedians. One of my favorite comedians, I won't even name him, but one of my favorite comedians, he, he, had, he, was, he had sitcoms, he had movies. I thought the man was nuts and he was funny. He took his life. Why? Because all the laughter that he is promoting externally is probably displaying what's happening internally, the opposite. So the Coeleth, this preacher, says, I've gone after laughter, it's vanity. Well, he went after a second test, second test in verse 3. Liquor, alcohol. That's going to be different than what you think here. In verse 3, it says this, I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine. My heart still guiding me with wisdom and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the days, few days of their lives. Now, now some look at this and say that he's gone after drunkenness. I don't think that's what he's doing. I think that what he's done is he's got a nice bottle of wine. He sat there and says, I'm going to sit down with a nice bottle of wine and try to think about wisdom in this world. He says, I still have kept my mind. My mind, my heart is still guiding me with wisdom. So it's not, he's not become so inebriated that he has uh, become overwhelmed with this alcohol, I don't think. I think he's just searching for alcohol to help him be the tonic to help him to find freedom in this world. And what is he doing? He finds it's folly. He finds that it doesn't produce anything. So whatever the substances are, the substance numbers, I, I was going to give you numbers, but you know them. The substance numbers are ridiculous. People are dying at a rampant rate because of drugs and alcohol in our society, in even our county here. This little county, Warren County in Washington, New Jersey, um, has drug abuse numbers that are going through the roof. Because people are searching for pleasure and meaning and liquor and alcohol and drugs are coming up short. There's a third test he went after, verse four through six, projects. So it wasn't laughter, it wasn't liquor and alcohol or drugs, it was projects. He said, I made great works and I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. Houses and vineyards. So he's planting these things. Um, 
I love going up to Newport, Rhode Island. I don't know if any of you have been up there. And so up in Newport, Rhode Island are all these mansions, right? These huge mansions. So we, we've gone up there and we, it's like, it's just shocking. I mean, it's like these houses, you know, you could put my old house, you could probably put a hundred of my old houses in some of these mansions. And the gardens are beautiful. I mean, you just walk out in those gardens and it's like, whoa, they are stunning. And I wonder if the vast majority of people that built those houses and built those gardens took their last breath and went to an eternity outside of God. And they built all of these mansions and all of these gardens and it led to nothing, futility. Derek Kidner, he's a commentator, talked about in verse 5, I made myself gardens and parks and planted them in um, all kinds of fruit trees, gardens. Kidner calls it a secular Garden of Eden. In fact, the words that are here about the works and planted and gardens and trees, all of these are the same words in the Genesis 1 and 2 creation account. So this writer here, this author, Solomon in all likelihood, has built these great houses, planted these vineyards, gardens, but it's a secular garden and it's not Eden. It's east of Eden. It's way past Eden. And the word parks, I found it interesting here in verse 5, it actually, it could be translated paradises. So these paradises that he is creating are futile. It's a new Garden of Eden. God's Garden of Eden, everything was good, but Solomon's Garden of Eden, everything was futile. It was fleeting. It died. And it was frustrating. Verse 6 says this, I made myself pools from which water to water the gardens of growing trees. There were pools and growing trees. In verse 7, he moves from laughter and liquor and alcohol and projects to people, possessions, and passions. Puts them all together in verses 7 through 8. People and possessions and passions. He said in verse 7, I bought male and female slaves. And I had slaves who were born in my house. Not only did he get slaves and he purchased them, then he also had slaves that were born in his house. It got me thinking about Thomas Jefferson. You know, Thomas Jefferson is writing this Declaration of Independence, but then is owning slaves. Solomon, this wisest man who knew about what freedom was in God, was enslaving people. And he saw them as possessions. But they had great possessions. He, he puts it slaves, which I found very uh, difficult. He puts slaves right next to herds and flocks. Because it's all his possessions. More than anyone who was before me in Jerusalem, there was no one could count along with him. Verse 8, I gathered for myself silver and gold and treasures. We talked about, we just sang about treasures in one of the songs this morning. The kings and the provinces. He got singers, he got his, his band up there to sing for him, both men and women. And then he got women, he got concubine, sex. Whatever kind of sex he could think of, he wanted. He went after it. Everything to the delight of the sons of man. So, laughter, liquor, projects, people, 
possessions, passions, prestige. Verse 9. So I became great. And I surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Do you hear how many times he talked about this? I am the king of kings. I am big dog. Also, my wisdom remained with me. The power and the privileges that he had in his life. The prestige, the fame. We hear the, king, the queen of Sheba heard about him and came to him. She was amazed at him. She was amazed at his wisdom. She was amazed at everything that he had. And many of the concubines were people from other nations bringing women to him as, as slaves for him. To show that they were reverencing him. And the prestige and the fame was going across. And all of these tests, he kept coming back with the same equation, futile. One of his final texts is here in verse um, 10. Pursuits, fulfillment. Whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure. My heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward. So he had some modest gains. When he would get, when he would drink alcohol, he felt good for a little bit. When he would build a project, it looked good. He felt good for a little bit. After he got out of bed with that person, he felt good for a little bit. There were some modest gains from all his toil. I was thinking about this. He's on the search for pleasure. What do you and I, this man wrote thousands of years ago, what does humanity today do to seek for pleasure? Well, in many ways, we kind of seek the same categories, entertainment, the TV shows that we watch, the movies that we watch, the music that we listen to. We, we seek for pleasure. The video games that people play, that they desperately need to have. I love sports, the sports that you watch. All of those things are things that you will do to seek for pleasure. But it's not just entertainment, substances, as we talked about. It's not just wine, as he's talking about. Alcohol and different drugs. Now vaping. I drive behind somebody's car and out the car blows the smoke constantly. And it's like, you know, I get car after car and the vaping that is going on today, it's just, it's becoming addictive to people. Substances. I need this to make me happy. Sex, whether it's pornography, premarital sex, extramarital sex, same sex, whatever sex you want to think about, people are going after this to try to find pleasure. Gambling. You know, we now have gambling constantly on TV. We have gambling in our state. And, and as you're gambling, and then they put those little things underneath, if you have a problem with gambling, contact, da 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 da. Ridiculous. Social media. There's a new platform almost every day. Possessions, things, things, things. I need this. I deserve this. I can't be happy without this. We do the exact same thing as Solomon. There's nothing new under the sun. So he's going after all of these tests, all under the umbrella of pleasure. And it keeps coming back. Here's his evaluation in verse 11. His evaluation is that it's empty, it's utterly disillusioned, futile, and despairing, frustration. He says this in verse 11, Then I considered all that my hands had done and all the toil that I had expended in doing it, and behold, see it, see it in all its glory, all is 
vanity or meaningless, a striving after the wind. There was nothing to be gained under the sun. Solomon is, is, is trying, he's combining all of these terms. He's talking about his toil. He's talking about meaninglessness. He's talking about chasing after the wind. He's talking about nothing is gained. There is no profit under the sun. He's piling up all of these words to say it is utterly worthless. The disillusionment, the frustration that he talks about. And some of these things are not moral things. They're not bad things in and of themselves. But when you go after these things for ultimate meaning in your life, you will find yourself coming up with a big zero. Failing. And far from yielding satisfaction, what we will find is that the deeper that you go, the more you will have to experience this over and over again. And such pleasures will lead to boredom in your life, as one writer said. And such pleasures you will tire of or you will get frustrated because they will not supply the answers that you desire. So it will lead to boredom in life, which, which a lot of us struggle with, or frustration in life, which a lot of us struggle with. So futility, fleeting pleasures, lead to my third thing, freedom, true freedom, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. The framers of the declaration said, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. And they're, they're endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. And among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. See, Ecclesiastes was written in such a way to depress us. Are you feeling depressed this morning? I like this note from the, e, the Gospel Translation, Gospel Transformation Bible. It says this. It was written to depress us into dependence on our joyous God and his blessed will for our lives. If we're attempting to live the meaningful secular life under the sun without reference to God, we're attempting to grasp at the unattainable. We're striving after the wind. The only remedy to the meaninglessness and depression caused by a godless life is God. In reference to himself, Jesus taught whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his own soul? So, do you want life? I do. Do you want liberty? I do. Do I want and do you want life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness? You will not find it living a godless life. How many times was God's name mentioned in this whole section that I mentioned? Did you notice how many times? Da -da -da -dum. One. And in the one, he saw God as giving hurtful things, challenging things. I didn't even count up how many times he used the word I or me or my, but it was a whole lot more than God. And that is the reason for his failings. On your seat, you got your thing for the week. There's a catechism. I love catechisms. Catechisms are, are ways that we used to teach children truths. 
And, and what you would do in a catechism is that you, the teacher, would ask a question and then the student would answer that question. One of my favorite catechisms is the Heidelberg Catechism. You know, I love the Westminster Catechism. I have some differences in theology on certain sections. Uh, but the Heidelberg Catechism, there's something about it because it's not just theology. It's really good and rich theology, but it, it's practical. And it begins with this question. And I want you to see this, and I want to kind of just end our time today with this. What is your only comfort? It's on the bottom of the sheet. So if you have your sheet, it's in the bottom of the sheet. We'll just look at questions one and two and then we'll end. What is your only comfort in life and death? That I am not my own, but belong both body and soul, both in life and death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has paid fully for my sins with his precious blood. He set me free from all the power of the devil. He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. Therefore, by the Holy, his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for him. Well, that first question is interesting because he says, do you want comfort in life? And you want comfort in even your death? It comes from the triune God. Did you notice it's the Father, the Son, and the Spirit? It's a gospel-centered one because it's Jesus Christ who lived for you and died for you and bled for you. It's the Holy Spirit who sets you free by connecting you to the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what real comfort is. That's where real life and liberty and the pursuit of happiness is found in God. Not in anything in this world. The second question is also important. What do you need to know in order to live and die in the joy of this comfort? Oh, I love this. I want to live in joy and comfort. And I want to die in joy and comfort. What do I need to know? Three things. First, how great my sin and miseries are. Second, how I am delivered from all my sins and ministry, misery. And third, how I am able to, I'm sorry, how I am to be thankful to God for such a deliverance. Great sin and misery, a great deliverance, and I should be thankful. That's why uh, some have categorized it into three sections. Guilt, grace, gratitude. So I end today with this. Our framers who wrote that uh, wonderful document, the Declaration of Independence, talked about life and liberty and the pursuit of happiness. They got it right partially. You got to take it to a creator. But they missed it because you also have to take it to the Savior. It's not just that we have a creator God, we have a Savior God. And when you bend your knee to that Savior, He wants to give you comfort in life and even comfort in your last breath because He's got it all in His hands. 
and all of it works together for good. But if you're seeking pleasure and wisdom in things of this world, meaningless. Striving after wind. Would you pray with me? So Lord, it is desperately needed to be depressed at times. You are a good God who wants to depress us at times. <laughs> Some people would say, that's gotta be crazy. God wants us happy all the day. No, God, you wanna expose our greatest problem, our sin. And you wanna point us, depress us to such a point that you point us to the only remedy, your son, your precious son. And then to have gratitude, the guilt, the grace, the gratitude, Lord. Solomon searched for meaning in life and wisdom and he failed. Solomon searched for meaning in life and pleasure and he failed. We do the same. Help us to search for meaning and comfort and joy in life in your son. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Um, this morning we are going to take the Lord's table, the communion table. And it's a, it's a good thing that we do this because it is a reminder. It's not only a good thing, it's a commanded thing. God commanded that we do this. Baptisms, which we'll have in several weeks, and the communion table is a reminder of what Christ did by his death, his burial, and his resurrection. When we take this cup this morning and the morsel, the morsel is not God's body and the um, cup is not God's blood. It's symbolic. But there's something specific that is happening here. God is reminding us of the grace of what he has given to us in Christ. So when you take the cup this morning, what I'm going to ask you to do is to hold it in your hands. Wait. One of the pastors is going to come up and pray you through each of those elements. And when you take it, I want you to remind yourself of what God has done for you. Now in our church, you do not have to be a member of our church to take this cup. You have to be a member of Christ's family, God's family, through the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you do not know him, let the, ta let the um, tray pass and then find one of us at the end. We would love to be able to talk to you about the wonderful gift that we have in Christ. I'm going to call the men down front to um, take the trays and then I'm going to pray over this before they hand them out to you. So Father, today as we take this morsel and we take this cup, help us to bask in the light of what your son has done for us and help us to bring glory and honor to his name. In Jesus' name we pray.
The Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. For us 
God, we do turn our eyes to you this morning. We glorify you and you alone. Life is but a vapor. We're here for a moment and then gone. But God, you ask us to look to you, to seek you, to turn our eyes to you. We can't think, take things with us. It doesn't work that way. I think most people, when their time comes, they ask themselves, what did I do for people while I was here? Did I just get stuff? Did I get caught up in my work? Or did I look to help people? And more importantly, to spread the gospel. Lord, we're going to interact with people this week who are not Christians, who don't have any hope. When we come face to face with them this week, wherever we are, God, put the words in our mouth to be able to speak truth to them and hope. We thank you for this morning, God. Be with us as we go from this place into our weeks. And you be glorified in everything we do. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a great week.